Welcome to episode 42 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Eiderscheidt from University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine. And here with my co-host, Mountainland physical therapist, Jeremy Stoker. How are you doing, Jeremy? Brian, doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, good. Good to have you back in this brand new year of 2020. Yeah, 2020 brings lots of good things, right? I would expect nothing less. Yep. Yeah, I hear it's the year of the eye doctor, though. Oh, really? Is that what's going yeah. on? Yeah, 2020. Okay, moving on. Registration <laughs> is now open for the 2020 Mountainland Running Summit, which will be held October 1st to the 3rd at the Grand Summit Resort in Park City, Utah. So as I mentioned, running, the registration is now live. It just opened, I believe, this week. Uh, so uh, log in and take a peek at it. The agenda is posted as well. Um, and so, again, this is our fifth annual event, and we're planning a few extras, uh, special things along the way. So uh, keep an eye out for further announcements as we move toward the summit. Uh, and always check back at our website, summit.mlrehab.com. And as always, send questions and feedback as well as suggestions for future guests at podcast.mlrehab.com. All right, today we are joined by Dr. Brett Torsdahl from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Dr. Torsdahl is an assistant attending physician at Hospital for Special Surgery and research director for the HSS, I knew I'm going to stumble on this, Primary Sports Medicine Service. He is board certified in family medicine and has a certificate of added qualification in sports medicine. He is a team physician for U.S. Biathlon and Rugby United New York, as well as an orthopedic consultant for UFC and on the medical staff for Invesco Series QQQ Tennis. He previously served as the TCS New York City Marathon Medical Captain, Seattle Marathon Assistant Medical Director, and Seattle Rock and Roll Marathon Medical Captain. Dr. Torsdahl is active in multiple areas of sports medicine research, including bone stress injuries, running injuries, cardiovascular screening in athletes, and tendinopathy. Welcome, Brett. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Jeremy. After getting through that, I don't think we have time for a podcast, so we're going to have to just wrap it and call it here. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> no, that's an impressive accomplishment. You've been highly active in a number of areas, um, and we're really, we're really uh, excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, happy to be here. So maybe just uh, we'd like to start off with giving our listeners a bit of background on each one of our guests. So uh, provide me, can you, if you can just give a little bit of an overview on, obviously I gave a bit of background on what your accomplishments are, but what led you into this area of, of work as a career? Uh, you know, ultimately what led you towards specializing in sports medicine? Yeah, so I grew up in Montana uh, where uh, outdoor sports were a big part of my childhood and adolescence. So uh, I ended up getting injured a few times on the ski hill. And so that um, piqued my interest in orthopedics. Uh, then through school, I got some exposure to uh, medicine, um, shadowing some doctors in undergrad and eventually applied to medical school. But it came full circle when I uh, connected with um, a, a primary care sports medicine uh, fellow at the time at University of Washington who uh, told me about uh, the field of um, primary care sports, non-surgical sports medicine. Uh, it really seemed to match a lot of my interests with uh, being able to uh, take care of a family of uh, uh, active individuals, uh, pediatrics, older adults, just keeping people um, active and moving and able to enjoy the things that uh, they want to get back to doing. So I went into primary care sports medicine um, and did all my training at the University of Washington and uh, didn't necessarily uh, set out to have a research focus or a research career, but um, 
got involved in some of the sports cardiology research uh, from my mentors, John Dresner and Kim Harmon, and um, uh, was able to uh, come out to Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, where uh, there's not as much sports cardiology research going on, but certainly a lot of runners in New York City. And so that's kind of where the transition happened, both from a clinical uh, practice and uh, from a research interest. So you mentioned with your research that you're doing a lot with with running injuries, bone stress injuries, tendinopathy and such. What sort of active uh, research protocols or, or programs are you involved with right now? One of the ongoing studies that we've been doing for the past couple of years here at HSS um, is looking at bone stress injuries in runners, um, specifically long bone injuries, tibia, fibula, metatarsals, and seeing if we can um, track the healing of a bone stress injury with ultrasound. And so we have funding from GE and NBA to uh, do that study, and we're about 75% completed with our enrollment. Um, but we're hopeful that we can uh, be able to give patients a little bit more data in terms of the path of their recovery, because oftentimes we'll get an x-ray or an MRI and we'll be able to diagnose a bone stress injury, but it's pretty tough to know objectively how far along they are with the healing. So it's a lot based on just their symptoms. And oftentimes after the first week or so, their symptoms have more or less resolved. So mm -hmm. you kind of cross your fingers and after a month or two of rest, you hope you can get them back to running safely. Uh, but if we could have some more um, objective information to be able to say that with an ultrasound, their callus, their bony callus looks uh, looks good and it should be able to sustain some added stress, then we'd be able to get people back in to running more safely without as many recurrent injuries. Yeah, that's great because you're right. Once, that, once the diagnosis of stress fracture comes in, then it's fairly prescriptive in terms of time-based recovery, depending on where the site of injury is and, and pain, and then let's go for it. <laughs> See exactly. how you handle it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So hopefully we can get a little more scientific than that. So that's the one that we've been working on for a couple of years with the stress fracture, uh, our bone stress injury field. Um, uh, but we've been able to form a partnership with um, New York Roadrunners over the years and have done a couple studies now with the New York City Marathon. We'll talk about one of them here and we're hoping to be able to continue that and potentially start involving some other marathons throughout the country now that we're getting a little bit better at our data collection and streamlining that process. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'd certainly get you back on if you're up for it to talk about your bone stress injury research and some of your other work because I think you're doing some really nice stuff and um, hopefully be a frequent reoccurring guest with all your work. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. So let's, let's dive into a little bit into the current paper, the most recent publication that you've got, which just came out in 2020, this first issue of uh, sports health. Um, but, and we'll get into the details of it, but the, the title of it is a randomized study of strength training program to prevent injuries in runners of the New York city marathon. And as I mentioned, that was published in the first issue, volume 12 uh, of sports health. Um, years 2020. So maybe just set up the background of the study a little bit. We'll get into the methodology and your findings in more details later, but what led you to dive into a, a clinical trial and in particular a strength training one as a way to try to prevent injuries? So the interest came from oftentimes prescribing strength training as part of the treatment for a lot of overuse injuries in runners, whether it's patellofemoral syndrome, IT band syndrome, tendinopathies. I think it's becoming more apparent the role of strength training rather than just 
anti-inflammatory treatments and stretching, that it's really um, restoring strength and uh, a good gait pattern um, for runners in terms of making a good recovery and hopefully preventing recurrent injuries. But uh, we didn't know, we weren't aware of much in terms of um, studies that showed that strength training was preventative. Um, there's quite a bit of um, information just in terms of general advice for runners that strength training is an important thing to do, but we ha weren't necessarily impressed or hadn't uh, seen much in terms of um, studies to show that definitively this is a good thing for all runners to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and they're hard to studies to do. I mean, to be able to get that many runners to follow a, a multi-week program of resistance training when admittedly, maybe not a, run, a lot of runners want to spend the time to do that sort of work. Um, they're, they're tough to do. Many of, a few have been done in the military that I'm aware of, but outside of that, they're few and far between. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this was our uh, first effort at trying to do something like that in a population of runners, which isn't quite as captive as a military setting. And where there's a lot of different factors that are hypothesized to go into um, the development of injuries. So we're looking at just making one uh, change in terms of what they're doing and um, had uh, half of the runners do a strength training program, um, but did nothing to necessarily control for their training volume, uh, rest, recovery, other types of cross training. So lots of variables there. And we uh, did our first effort uh, with this one to see uh, what we could uh, see with an intervention, what we can control for. Um, and what we can learn and go forward to uh, do a version two in the future. All right. So let's, let's dive into some of the details then, I guess. Uh, so with the study design, this was, a, this was a randomized trial. Exactly, yeah. So we uh, had um, first-time marathon runners uh, participate in the study, and we're uh, grateful to New York Roadrunners who sent an email out to all of the registrants of the marathon, which is over 50,000. And uh, specifically recruited first-time runners. So we had over 800 uh, respond to that recruitment email. Um, 720 ended up meeting criteria and being active in the study when we started the intervention period. Yeah, that's great. And so that is an important point. These are first-time marathon runners. Um, so in terms of who qualifies, that's an important distinction we want to make. Yeah, exactly. We we're hopeful that, well, we anticipated that a first-time marathon runner would be a higher risk group and um, as we'll take a look at uh, with some future studies and we'll be able to share that later um, that maybe that's not necessarily the case but we assumed first-time marathon runners would be a good test population because they may not have their strength training programs already in place um, and they'd be receptive to any sort of instruction from us. For sure and and arguably they're probably going to experience more injury <laughs> yeah, being their yeah, first time. And so you're, you're, you get, you get more outcomes. <laughs> you certainly think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Brett, in terms of, of, Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. I was just wondering on that, on your, your characteristics in your study, mm -hmm. it talks about um, those that uh, had canceled previous year's entry. Mm -hmm. So had some of those, do you know how far into their training they got into the year before, you know, did they do most of the cycle? And then, I, I mean, do we know what their previous year, data was or anything that way? Oh, we don't. Um, so some of them uh, with the New York City Marathon, you don't necessarily have to be injured to be able to defer a year. Uh, so they don't um, have it um, specific to an injury. So some of those could simply have had travel logistics or scheduling issues come up. Okay. So 
you ended up sending out an email survey to the uh, New York City Roadrunners. I'm curious, how long did it take you to get 750 responders? About a week. Wow. So, wow. Beautiful. Quick. Yeah. That's the advantage of living in a densely populated area. <laughs> exactly. And having the <laughs> largest marathon in the world yeah. in the backyard. Not too shabby. All right. So you, uh, you ended up getting some data at baseline, correct? Mm -hmm. Before they began the intervention, what kind of data did you collect? We wanted to know uh, what kind of running history they had. So we found out how many 10Ks, half marathons they completed, uh, if they were using a prescribed training plan, if they had a running coach or club that they were working with, and then what kind of um, cross training they were doing. If it was uh, like a high intensity interval class, spin class, swimming, biking, those sort of things. So uh, we tried to collect as much as we could in just terms there, get an overall picture of their exercise and physical activity. Okay. And then at that point, they were randomized into one of the two groups. And I know you try to maintain equal numbers and try to control for sex as well, making sure you had fairly equal males, females. Yeah, since we didn't know if there was going to be a gender difference in terms of injury rates, we wanted to make sure that we had an equal number of males and females in each of the uh, study groups. So we controlled for sex and then random that, randomized them to either a strength training group or a solely observation. So we, uh, this isn't technically a randomized control trial because we didn't control the activity of the mm -hmm. comparison group. We simply observed them over the 12-week period. Okay. So with the, the strength training program, I'd like to talk on that a little bit because I think people will get intrigued by the program, how you put it together, your thought process for it. Um, so it was, it was a 10 minute program to be done twice or three times a week. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the intent was, uh, to find a program that would be short enough that people would do, uh, simple enough that they could do without much direction, uh, and also something that doesn't require equipment. So we knew that in order to be able to show a difference in injury incidents, we needed to have a large number of runners. And that there would be no feasible way, especially with the New York City Marathon, which is and yeah. has a lot of international runners or people from outside the area. We wouldn't be able to do anything in person or any direct observation or instruction. So uh, we came up with uh, what, uh, just based on our experience and uh, consensus of what uh, would be the most likely balance between long enough that it would produce some sort of strength gains, but short enough that people would be compliant with it. And we came up with a 10 minute program that uh, people could do three times a week, just in their apartment or wherever they are without any sort of, without any equipment. Um, and so the nuts and bolts of the program include a series of squats, planks, lunges, uh, single leg toe touches. Um, and we did a cycle of those. So uh, for 10 minutes, they would be doing these with a little rest time in between. Um, we had a beginner and an advanced track so that people could self-select into either one of those given their strength or exercise uh, experience. And the intent was that over the course of the 12 weeks, people who weren't able to do the advanced track at the beginning would eventually be able to do the advanced track by the end. So we had some uh, differentiation um, simply based on their ability. Um, and so for the advanced tract, we did more plyometric variations of all these activities. So plyometric squat jumps, plyometric lunges, um, 
and with the planks, especially, uh, specifically the side plank, we did some uh, leg abduction while holding that side plank. Do you have a sense of how many people self-selected into the beginner versus the advance to start? We didn't, yeah. So we didn't, uh, in terms of the patients or the runners that we were able to connect with, um, both in the office who are, and we later saw as patients or who were communicating with us directly, it seemed like many were transitioning into the advanced group as we expected. Okay. So uh, let's go ahead, Jeremy. Within the, the groups, um, I guess, beginner to advanced, was there a, a progression that was like already implemented in there? First week is two sets, second week three sets kind of thing. And then likewise with the advanced group, did that progress or was it same through the 12 weeks? It was uh, for the strength training group. They simply <clears throat> were uh, instructed to uh, start with the beginner sets and if that was too easy start to incorporate the advanced sets as much as they're able so sometimes people would start with uh, if they're able to do some regular squats uh, easily what they would do is uh, add in some plyometric squats as they started to progress and they may not be able to maintain that for the entire 10 minutes to do the plyometric variations but they would start with that and then we're instructed to incorporate as many of the advanced um, activities uh, or exercises uh, as they were able going forward. Okay, so some progression through there just kind of self-selected as they felt they could from beginner to advanced. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so Brett, you had mentioned that some individuals may have jumped right into the advanced because they had had more experience with strength training already or whatnot. Do you have a sense of how many were already or had ongoing strength training happening and, and did they have to modify that at all during the trial? Uh, so we uh, heard from runners who just were wondering if they could maintain a lot of their other exercises and we encouraged them to do as much as that they, as much as they wanted to do we didn't try to change what they were already doing um, but more or less just add in, add this on top of their normal routine and uh, the feedback that we got at the end of the study was that um, it was sufficient in terms of the people who were compliant with it they felt like it did provide a benefit so we didn't necessarily get the the response that it was too easy or too hard that kind of met people at each end of it. So I think in that respect, it uh, served its function of trying to uh, not necessarily be one size fits all, but two sizes can, and in, <laughs> and a blend in between is able to meet a lot of people where they're at. Yeah. Um, and so uh, from that perspective, just trying to make something that produces some strength gains, um, it does have some flexibility and variation uh, to be adaptable to whatever somebody's prior experience and strength is. And so when you, when you uh, enrolled people in the study or got them in the intervention side of it, mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you had videos available for them to view on so they understood the technique that was involved and everything. Exactly, yeah. So we created a video that you could follow along to. Um, and then we had a handout that people could take on the road or if they would prefer not watching the same person do the video every time. Yeah. <laughs> we specifically chose not to put any music to it because we knew that that would probably get annoying after about a week. <laughs> for, for sure. Exactly. Especially if it's a song you don't want to listen to. Um, so one of the challenges with any sort of interventional study is adherence. And you, you actually mentioned compliance among those who were compliant. Did you have a sense of how many people uh, adhered to what you were recommending? Yeah. So we, uh, saw that in terms of the compliance, um, the average number of times per week that uh, the people in the strength training group 
completed the uh, the exercise program, at least what they self-reported. And again, that is likely been inflated, uh, but was a little over two times per week. Um, and then what we looked at is in terms of people who are on average uh, nearly perfect or close to that, we saw that 176 people in the strength training group um, were what we what we uh, categorized as compliant, where they did um, consistently two or more times per week. So it wasn't 100% compliance, but we thought that even if you did two times per week over the course of 12 weeks, we probably would see some improvement. And uh, we did some subgroup analysis and could see some changes there. But um, on average, two times a week, some people were absolutely perfect three times or four or five times every week. Um, and other people were pretty inconsistent one or two times. And so, um, uh, it's something that we knew that going forward that trying to get people to do this consistently and report it accurately was not uh, going to be um, easy to do. Yeah, for sure. You know, and again, similar to it, you know, a challenge of something like this, when you have that many numbers is to try to get, you know, baseline strength measures and then post intervention mm -hmm. strength measures to see, did, did my intervention actually have the specific desired effect? You know, ultimately you want to influence injury rates, but that I actually modify strength and doing that when you're talking about the numbers that you have at a time when they're heading into a race where your window of enrollment and completion is really tight yeah. is really hard to do. Yeah. And that's a good point that you bring up that um, we don't, we didn't collect any sort of baseline strength measurements and uh, after uh, post-intervention measurements to be able to measure exactly how much this strength training intervention had an effect on them. Uh, but that actually is what one of the purposes of a, our study from this year with uh, the marathon that just happened in November um, was to, to evaluate a, um, a strength and flexibility self-assessment and see if we can uh, associate that with um, a difference in injury incidence. Because if we think about this study that we're talking about now, it was a bit like a Hail Mary that we thought that mm -hmm. if runners could benefit from strength training. Let's just give a bunch of people a strength, the same strength training intervention and just hope that we see something. Uh, and we'll get to the punchline in a bit, little bit, but it, uh, we didn't see a big, uh, we didn't see a change in the um, major injuries. Uh, but what we decided to do for future studies is break it down a little bit. So first see if we can identify some strength deficiencies and see if we can then associate those strength deficiencies with injury then create more of a customized strength yeah. training intervention focused on a runner's specific deficiencies then see if the deficiencies improve with the strength training intervention and then finally see if that more specific strength training intervention decreased injury so a few more years to go to break it down and our Hail Mary pass was incomplete, but, <laughs> but we tried. Uh, but you tried. That's right. That's a good starting point. But what the direction you guys are heading, I mean, either you won the lottery or you've got a 10-year project planned ahead of you because that's a monster to do. And it's going to be very expensive, but it's, it's perfect. I mean, it's exactly what, everybody, what we do. It's what we do in clinic, right? Mm -hmm. You've got an end of one in front of you. You have the time to be able to see exactly what this person's needs are and you develop an individualized targeted program for them. And, and that's always the challenge when people roll out or people make blanket statements about stretching is, is not this or strengthening is not that. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a one size fits all, right? Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, so then let's get into a little bit more of the specifics of, of your, your incomplete Hail Mary. <laughs> but, so <laughs> so what, what were the outcomes for it? Yeah, so we were looking at um, our primary outcome was the incidence of major injury, which we defined as an injury that uh, prevented somebody from either starting the marathon or finishing the marathon. And then some of our secondary outcomes were minor injuries, which we defined as uh, any injury that limited the number of training runs, the duration of their training run, how fast they were running, or affected their race performance. So the injury was, it didn't necessarily have to be there for three days or five days. It was like a, a one-off thing. If they were, if they, if it modified their training for that day, then it was constituted as a, an injury of sorts. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a minor it's, injury. Yeah. And that's always the big discussion when it comes to any sort of injury study is what's the definition of an injury and is right. it just pain that you feel with running? We felt like um, when people have an injury or they have pain that affects their training plan that that's worthwhile noting. Um, some people have training plans where they're running every day so they, it could be three days of pain and they miss three training runs and so that would if you have a cutoff a little bit higher of number of training runs missed, the, somebody could wipe that out or meet that criteria with three days of pain. Whereas if somebody's only running two days a week, they wouldn't necessarily meet it with the same duration of symptoms. So we thought uh, with this, we'd probably cast a wider net with what we des described as minor injuries with just any sort of uh, limitation or effect on a training run or race performance. And then with major injuries, it's a pretty narrow net that um, it's specifically those that prevented somebody from participating in the marathon. Okay. And were they, were they asked to like log into a website to record their injuries and, and their injury log along the way, or they keep a notebook diary of it or? Yeah. So we uh, touched base with all of the runners every two weeks during the 12 okay. weeks of the study. Right. And so the first question that we asked them was, are you still planning on running the marathon? And if no, if they decided not to run it, we found out why. And then everyone who indicated that the reason for not uh, planning on to complete the marathon was because of an injury. I got a follow-up call with one of the study investigators to find out the details of their injury, what sort of care they've received or diagnostic workup they've had. Um, if they've, if the person indicates on the um, biweekly survey that they had um, an injury that just affected their training, but they were still planning on, um, completing the marathon. That was something that we then collected just through the survey, some additional information of their description of the injury. So uh, we were dependent a lot on self-report um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we didn't have access to everyone's medical records, unfortunately, sure. to know exactly what they were dealing with. Yeah, no, understandable for sure. So what, what, was, the, what was the key takeaway from it? Yeah, so of the 720 runners that we started this study, um, so we ended up seeing that the majority of them actually complete uh, participated in the marathon. So 87% of those who started training at 12 weeks and were part of the study actually finished, uh, showed up on race day, and nearly everyone finished the marathon. So only four people dropped out um, during the race. So um, uh, it would be interesting to see how this compares to some of the other, uh, other marathons, just because um, there may be something unique about New York City that people are committed and motivated to finish it and the type of course it goes through. But um, so we saw that 
the number one reason for not participating in the race was injury as we expected. So we had 49 people describe uh, to us an overuse injury and that's really what we were looking at in terms of these injuries that were potentially preventable, whether it's through a strength training program or training modifications. The most common uh, ended up being a bone stress injury. Um, so we uh, didn't see a difference in terms of the incidence of major overuse injury between the um, strength training group and the observation group. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, we didn't see a difference in terms of their finishing time either. Um, however, once we started to break them down and looking at the people who were most compliant in the strength training group and those who did no independent strength training in the observation group, we did see a couple differences there. Um, we just weren't powered. Um, to be able to show that, to show a significant difference there. One thing that I was struck by is, you know, anytime you're dealing with a survey-based study, is is the response rate, you know, many, Mm -hmm. if you, if you get anywhere between 30 to 50% response, it's good for general study, but even follow-ups, 60, 70% follow-up would be great. You have 97 and 98% follow-up. That's incredible on a survey only. Yeah, it was uh, quite surprising. Um, We had, uh, a couple of people who were just super diligent about uh, following up with these runners. Um, so Kat McElhaney was the sports medicine fellow at the time. And Brittany Ammerman was the research coordinator who's now at med school. Um, and she, uh, the two of them worked hard to follow up with all of these runners. And um, I think we were benefited that people who are running New York City Marathon as their first marathon are pretty excited about anything marathon related and um, as runners who are data focused anyway, we were um, we benefited from people who just probably self-selected into a quite a compliant group of those who uh, we're including in the study and trying to get survey data from. So pretty quickly we found um, people learned that we cared a lot about the data that they could provide us. And so uh, it took a lot of work with that first couple biweekly surveys, but afterwards people knew that if they weren't completing them on their own, they were going to get a phone call every day until it was done. So uh, <laughs> there was some persistence there, but it paid off. That's pretty impressive. So the overall uh, implication of your findings, I mean, how, what's, the, what's the takeaway for listeners in terms of what, what do they do with your study results? Yeah, so this is something that I think we can take away seeing that there's not a one-size-fits-all um, or an easy strength training intervention that we just need to tell all runners to do, especially first time runners that uh, it's obviously more complicated than that, um, that we need to be accounting for both their uh, cross training, strength training, training patterns, and figuring out what's the right combination of all of that for somebody's experience level goals with the marathon. Some people just maybe want to finish and they're happy to walk 12 miles of it and other people maybe their first marathon, but they want to get a sub three hour time. And so everybody has a little bit of a different goal in their uh, training and strength training has to be um, modified to fit that. So what we can take away though, is that um, there's different things that we can do in terms of trying to improve compliance with this. I think that's probably the one thing that if we could tweak any factor in the study would be to, I'd love to see what would happen if we could just make sure everybody 
had did this program three times a week and if that alone was enough to see start to see an improvement in terms of their uh, injury incidents their finishing time uh, but as we talked about before that if we can start to make it a little bit more personalized or customized to somebody's strength deficiencies it may be easier to get some compliance there because you wouldn't have to do it for 10 minutes you might be able to make some real changes in somebody's mechanics by just doing some simple exercises for two or five minutes and it would be um, exactly what that runner needs so we have some work to do i think this is kind of like if we compare it to an acl prevention program mm -hmm. that uh, it takes years to and different iterations of the programs before we start to see some improvements and so we're going to be certainly working on that uh, among the group here at hss and Hope that uh, this would inspire some other people to see if they can one-up us and create a better program that uh, has some better compliance and see if they can uh, start to decrease this incidence of overuse injuries because that ends up being the thing that at the end of the day keeps somebody from completing their goal of doing a marathon. Yeah, no, this is, this is great stuff in the sense that this is an area that has a huge need and there's a lack of really any sort of evidence to guide that process. I think <clears throat> anecdotally, we all would say that, that there's a benefit to strength training for distance runners. And physiologically, we and biomechanically, we can document that there are specific changes that occur that are perceived to be beneficial. How that affects injury rates, that's the hard part. And that's that makes it really challenging to put something together in an effective way. So I, I am curious on the on the one size fits all idea. I was just thinking about as you were talking, does it do you think then and maybe I'll put you on the spot a little bit, do you think though that programs that are a bit generic that are given towards, say, for example, a group of high schoolers and say, you know, we're going to walk into this particular high school and not do any sort of screening on their athletes, but say, here's a good strengthening program for high school cross country runners. Is, do you think, do you, does your gut say that would, could be effective or might not? Because now we've reduced our population down to all high school age mm -hmm. of all some you know we've we've taken a lot of that variability that exists in what your population was yeah but is it still too variable i think in that setting there's probably some value in doing something a little more streamlined or one size fits all because you would think that as part of a high school cross country team or track team you have a little bit more control of what other people, what they're doing for their cross training and what strength training they're doing on their own. Whereas in this group, they were allowed to do whatever else they wanted to do yeah. in their free time. So, uh, so I think in that population, there probably is some benefit in having some standardization in terms of a strength training program. Um, and it's just figuring out, is there something that can be high yield in terms of, being able to do it easily without a lot of instruction or um, experience in terms of doing these exercises so you're not injuring yourself further because if you do a bunch of lunges with terrible technique you could create an injury yourself uh, or just with that um, but I do think that with any of these injury prevention programs whether it's ACL or with our attempts to this you're gonna there's gonna be some that are gonna be higher risk than others in terms of the participants of the study so mm -hmm. you're going to throw something across everybody and really hopefully have the effect on the people who are highest risk and so it just may not be possible to easily identify the highest risk people from the start 
Yeah, no, exactly. Good point. All right. Well, we've covered a variety of excellent issues today. Um, is there anything else in terms of like a, that, that take home message you want to leave for our listeners? I know you've given a couple already, but anything else you want to leave them with? Yeah, I don't think I would discourage people from strength training. Um, just based on this, I do think that there's value in doing that. It's just, there's going to be more work to be done and we're going to keep working at that um, to try to figure out exactly who needs to be doing what and hopefully make it a little bit more, uh, uh, less time consuming, easier to do um, and more targeted for what you really need. All right, Brett, thank you so much for joining us today and taking your time. Yeah, thanks guys. Appreciate thanks, it. Brett. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Jeremy Stoker, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Registration for the 2020 Mountainland Running Summit is open, so check out full programming online at summit.mlrehab.com. As always, you can find more information on all the running medicine resources offered by Mountainland Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com slash run. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.